The reason the Stark Law is so challenging is because it, it is so definitionally driven. Captain Integrity Production and the law firm of Nelson Mullins presents Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. Stark Integrity explores the world of the Stark Law and healthcare compliance with our nationally recognized Stark Law fraud, and compliance attorney, Bob Wade. Bob has a national healthcare legal and compliance practice that focuses on the minions of the anti-kickback statute, false claims act, and the Stark law, including fair market value and commercial reasonableness. Although Bob is a law partner in the national law firm of Nelson Mullins, the views expressed in Stark Integrity are Bob's personal views and not the views of the firm, and they are not intended to be legal advice. Now, without further ado, I give you Captain Integrity, Bob Wade. Welcome to Episode 2 of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. In this episode, I will be dealing with the definitions under the Stark Law. And the definitions under the Stark Law are very broad expansive and detailed and contrast that with the anti-kickback statute which we all know is a felony it's a criminal statute it is not as detailed as the stark law because it is broad in application under the anti-kickback statute all the government has to prove is that a medical provider intended to induce referrals through a financial arrangement unless you meet a safe harbor and so because of its broad application and also, since it's a, a criminal statute, the real focus is on whether or not the medical provider had the requisite intent to induce referrals. And so that is the core of the anti-kickback statute. But since the Stark Law is a civil statute and it is a billing statute, then the, the definitions in the Stark Law are very complex and detailed in order to show that there's a, an inappropriate financial arrangement. The big five definitions under the Stark Law, which I will hit, and I'll hit some other definitions under the Stark Law so you can see how detailed these definitions are. And sometimes they're a little bit comical or nonsensical. You know, if you, if you stand back and just read it, uh, in fact, the one, and I'll just cue this up now, it's the geographic area served by the hospital. And well, one time I was in front of a group of oncologists and I gave that definition and every physician started laughing uh, because they just did not believe the Stark Law was that detailed and proscriptive. So the big five definitions, which I will unpack and then I'll talk about some of the other interesting definitions are referral, physician, designated health services, entity, and remuneration. And the reason those are the big five is because those are the heart or essence of the Stark Law. Because the Stark Law prevents a physician from referring designated health services to a DHS entity if that physician has remuneration or a financial relationship uh, with a DHS entity that does not conform with an applicable exception. So that's the reason why those are the big five.
The first definition is the referral. And I think that most people would, would believe that it's pretty simple to know what a referral is. It's the piece of paper or the request for a service. But under the Stark Law, the definition does cover a request by a physician or the ordering or certifying of a test or a service by a physician, a request for consultation by a physician, but it does not include any service that is personally performed by the physician. And actually, this was a question in the phase one regulations where individuals were asking whether it was a Stark Law violation for a physician to perform a designated health service. And the government became clear in the phase one regulations that if the physician is going to personally perform the service, that is not deemed to be a referral. And it's also for a, an establishment of care. A lot of times you go to a physician and a physician establishes a plan of care, and that plan of care may be performed by other providers like nurse practitioners uh, or physician assistants or even techs. And as long as the, the plan of care was developed by the physician and that plan of care includes designated health services, the development of the plan of care is deemed to be a referral under Stark. Now, what's interesting under the Stark law, there are three specialties that do not refer. So this is specific in the referral definition under the Stark law uh, for referral. And those three specialties are pathology, for clinical diagnostic laboratory tests, radiologists for diagnostic radiology services, and we'll probably talk later in further episodes, that would include for radiologists both the technical and the professional component, as well as radiation oncologists for radiation therapy or ancillary services that are integral to uh, radiation therapy. Those are the three specialties that technically do not refer. And those three specialties are not accepted under the anti-kickback statute. And I frequently get asked questions about, you know, what about anesthesiology uh, or emergency medicine? Well, those are not specific specialties that have been excluded from the definition of a referral in the Stark Law. So if those specialties order tests or services that impact the reimbursement because of the ordering of their tests. So by way of an example, if the emergency department physician admits a patient and uh, establishes the course of treatment, the admission of that patient by the emergency physician is deemed to be a referral into the hospital. The same is true for an anesthesiologist. And a lot of times the anesthesiologist, when he or she orders uh, a service that may not technically impact the DRG or the APC that is being provided. So under, under the Stark Law, those specialties, the hospital-based specialties, are still deemed to be uh, referrals uh, under the Stark Law. And again, e even though they're accepted under the Stark Law, those individuals still could make referrals that are in violation of the anti-kickback statute. The next one is designated health services, and as we learned in episode number one, the Stark Law started with laboratory services, uh, but it expanded in, in Stark 2 to a bunch of other related services, and here's just the list. So in addition to clinical laboratory services, it's physical therapy, occupational therapy, outpatient speech and language pathology services, radiology services, radiation therapy, 
DME or durable medical equipment, parental uh, nutrients, equipment and supplies, prosthetics, orthotics and devices, home health services, outpatient prescription drugs, and as I said in, fa- in uh, episode number one, the granddaddy of them all is inpatient and outpatient hospital services. Now, note, if a service is encompassed by what is called a composite rate, uh, composite rates would be a, like a daily rate for a nursing home or a daily rate for a hospice patient or possibly the, the, an ambulatory surgery center procedure. There could be designated health services like imaging that would be within that composite rate, but because the composite rate is not deemed to be a um, designated health service under Stark, even though that composite rate could be comprised of designated health services that I include in the list, uh, that composite rate would not apply uh, to the Stark law as being a designated health service. But like if a nursing home does perform therapy, uh, speech therapy or occupational therapy that is apart from their composite rate and bills for that separately, then that would be deemed to be a designated health service. Now, the next definition is physician. And I think most people will say, well, this is pretty easy. This is the guy or the gal that has the MD or DO. And that's that's true. But also there's other individuals that can be uh, physicians uh, under the Stark Law. And those would include dental surgery, podiatry, optometry, and chiropractic uh, or chiropractors. So those individuals would uh, also be included in the definition of a physician. Now, what gets interesting is that the physician also includes immediate family members of a physician. So under the Stark Law, it's the husband or wife of the physician, the adoptive parent, child, or sibling, step-parent, step-child, step-brother, step-sister, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law or sister-in-law, a grandparent, grandchild, and spouse of a grandparent or grandchild. Those are all considered to be physicians under the definition in Stark. And so, therefore, the Stark Law would apply to those uh, individuals. And I'll give you an example. I, I was in-house. I was a general counsel for a hospital system for seven years. And we had a system where all of our physician contracts went before our executive committee of the board for approval. And one time I took a real estate transaction before the board for approval. And I said that this contract was subject to the Stark Law. And the board members looked at me and said, well, why is this contract subject to the Stark Law? Because a physician is not a seller, a physician's not a buyer. And I said, but the agent representing the seller is a spouse of a referring physician. So therefore, that arrangement, because that agent on behalf of the seller was going to receive a commission, the Stark Law was implicated for that person's commission. Another example we had, we had uh, a spouse of a referring physician who wanted to set up a coffee cart uh, for some hospital gathering. And we wanted to review the compensation paid for that coffee cart service because the coffee cart company was owned by a referring physician. So especially in smaller communities, 
or you know smaller urban areas, you may have a lot of husband, wife, or you know father and children, or, or mother and children or relationships uh, in the the city that you'll have to be careful because a lot of those, because of the definition of physician, includes those immediate family members. You'll have to be careful because some of those what you would considered not to be a stark related transaction are definitely stark transactions. The next definition is the word entity. And at the beginning, when entity was first enacted, uh, the word entity only applied to the entity that billed Medicare for the designated health service. But in the phase three regulations, they modified the definition of entity to include not only the entity that billed for the service, but also the entity that performed the service. So a lot of joint ventures uh, were created before they modified the definition of entity, where the joint venture was actually performing the designated health service. By way of example, you may have an imaging joint venture, and that imaging joint venture sells the imaging service to a hospital, then the hospital would bill for that service. And as long as the financial arrangement between the joint venture and the hospital was fair market value uh, before the modification of the definition of entity, then the hospital would be the only DHS entity. But now, since they modified it, that joint venture, since they're producing an image uh, for imaging, then that joint venture would be deemed to be a designated health service entity. And also, entity is defined by the provider number. So like if you have an integrated delivery system or a large health system, every individual hospital could have their own provider number. And that becomes really important as we talk later in further episodes uh, dealing with the medical staff incidental benefit and non-monetary compensation that the, each of those entities will have their own annual limit. And it does not include, and this is interesting, it does not include the physician practice that bills the professional or technical component of a diagnostic test if that diagnostic test is subject to the anti-markup requirements. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but just know that the uh, under the definition of entity, if the anti-markup tests uh, does apply, then the that entity would not be deemed to be an entity under the Stark Law. It's a very rare exception, and I've only encountered that a couple of times. A couple of more uh, definitions I want to get to uh, is uh, under the group practice definition. I'll have a couple of episodes on the group practice, but under the group practice, there are there are physicians who are deemed to be members of a group practice, and also physicians who are deemed to be physicians in a group practice. And the major difference there is a member of a group practice would be uh, some a physician who is an employee, a W two employee, or an owner of that group practice. But a physician in a group practice is broader than just members in a group practice, and that does include independent contractors. And one thing to note here, independent contractors, in order to fit within the physician in a group practice definition, uh, that they have to have a direct contractual relationship with the group practice. It can't be through a separate company. And also, uh, if you're an independent contractor trying to meet the physician in a group practice definition, then the services provided 
by that independent contractor have to be provided within the group practice facilities. Now, the group practice, there's a group practice definition, then there's also an in-office ancillary services exception, which I'm not going to get into today, but we'll talk about that a little bit further. One of the other large issues is this legal term called remuneration. And as defined under Stark, remuneration is very broad. It means any benefit. As long as a physician's receiving any benefit, then that is deemed to be remuneration. And one time when I was in-house, I was giving a presentation to a bunch of physicians on our medical staff, and I passed around a Captain Integrity coffee mug that had a bunch of pennies, and I asked the doctors each to take a penny. And uh, the mug was being passed around while I was making the presentation. And I asked the doctors to hold up the penny at the end. And I said, I want to thank all of you for all of your referrals. And I am thanking you for all of your referrals that you're making to our hospital by giving you this penny. And all the pennies just dropped on the table. So the reason why Stark is so granular is because of the definition of remuneration. So as long as a physician's receiving any type of benefit, a logoed pen, a coffee mug, a prized parking spot, tickets to a sporting event, or anything else that is of a benefit to a physician, that's deemed to be remuneration. A couple of other definitions is, uh, and this also applies to the group practice definition and the in-office ancillary services exception, is this thing called a centralized building and also a same building. And you would think a building is just a building, but not under Stark. Under Stark, a centralized building is one that is owned or leased by a physician group full-time. So that one's a pretty easy one. Now, the same building is a lot more complex. And so this is one where if you have a facility that is not used by a group practice full-time, and when I talk about the in-office ancillary services exception, I'll go into a lot more detail on this. But if it's used part-time, then there are various requirements dealing with uh, not only the provision of the designated health service, like the laboratory test within that facility, but also the presence of physicians in that office space, either when it is ordered or when the DHS is actually provided. It goes down, to, there's a 35-hour uh, test, uh, and there's also an eight-hour test that a, the facility would have to be open for eight hours, and physician services provided within that space uh, at least six hours a week. Now, under the same building, too, under the definition under Stark, it has to use the same mailing address. So the same mailing address would be that by the United States Postal Service, it has to have a single address. So I faced this once before where you have multiple spaces uh, in a medical office building, each with, and then there's a probably usually a ground floor, but each of them would have their own uh, mailing address. And so under those mailing addresses, we had to get to the building to receive its the uh, the same mailing address. And so we had to go through the U.S. Postal Service in order to get a new mailing address for each of the spaces. And under the same building, building you can use loading docks and parking garages. So for mobile services, 
that is something that can uh, occur. Last definition before I get to the Captain Integrity Punch Points is the geographic area served by the hospital. This is the one where I told you the oncologist laughed at me. And under the geographic area served by the hospital, this has to go with the recruitment exception under the Stark Law. It's the lowest number of contiguous zip codes where the hospital draws at least 75% of their inpatients. So that's very granular. And you're looking at zip codes analysis. And you can have within those contiguous zip codes, some zip codes where they're receiving zero inpatients. And also, uh, if you're in a rural hospital, then there is the ability to have contiguous 90% versus 75%. So I just want to give you a flavor about how detailed and granular these definitions are. So as we conclude this episode number two of Stark Integrity, I wanted to give you the three Captain Integrity punch points for this episode. So punch point number one is the Stark Law is very definitionally driven. So the, the very detailed definitions. Punch point number two, if the arrangement meets a definition, then Stark applies. If it does not meet a definition, like you don't have a referral or you don't have a physician, then the Stark Law does not apply. And also, remember, this is punch point number three, the key definitions under the Stark Law. Number one, referral. Number two, physician, including immediate family members. Number three, designated health services. Number four, entity. And number five, remuneration, which again means any benefit. So again, the three Captain Integrity punch points are number one, the Stark Law is very definitionally driven. Number two, you meet it or you don't meet it in order for the Stark Law to be implicated. And number three, remember the, the key definitions of referral, physician, DHS, entity, and also remuneration. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Stark Integrity, the Stark Law and Compliance Podcast. If you have any questions regarding this episode, the Stark Law, or healthcare compliance, you can contact me at bobwadecaptainintegrity at gmail.com or my law firm email address at bob.wade at nelsonmullins.com. You can review this and any other episode of Stark Integrity at the Captain Integrity website at captainintegrity.com. You can also follow me on LinkedIn under Bob Wade. I hope the three Captain Integrity punch points will help you with the Stark Law and compliance. In closing, remember that integrity depends on you and me.